I think someone recently said that now you have to say open your Bibles or uh, browse to <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 20 in your online uh, you know, version of the Bible because uh, we, we are kind of a digital society now. Um, I really enjoy that, uh, that song uh, that we sang just a moment ago because I, I always think that's uh, kind of the, our, the prayer that preachers ought to have in their hearts when they get up to speak is that they break the bread of life uh, to us and I think that that's uh, always an apropos song. Uh, I apologize, we had some wrong words on the screen for one of the verses account your blessings. I don't know if you know this, but uh, uh, almost every hymnal has different selections of verses. Uh, one of the, uh, that fact is that uh, song we just sang, uh, Break Thou the Bread of Life, actually has seven verses, and what's in our hymnal are verses one, two, three, and six. Uh, but there's, there's other verses that have good words, and one of these days I think we'll just uh, put all the words up, maybe sing all seven verses. It might be fun to do. Uh, but sometimes we miss some of the really good theology and good verses that are out there. Well, I realize that it's uh, Thanksgiving week. Um, I had uh, kind of a rough weekend physically, and last night was exceptionally bad. I got about three and a half hours of sleep, and that was only with a lot of medication. And I had some really severe pain, and uh, y'all pray for my wife because she doesn't get much sleep when I'm in pain. And uh, I think I would do her a great favor by building a new house and having a separate bedroom where I can scream and not wake her up. Uh, but at any rate, uh, it was kind of a tough week. And, and uh, my father, one of the things I, I remember that he told me that has stuck with me through the years is, is that, uh, you know, if you don't know what to preach to others, preach what you need. So that's what I'm doing this morning. So none, nothing in this message will apply to any of you. It's just me talking to me, and uh, you just get to follow along. Uh, because this message is about having problems, and I know nobody here has problems but me. And so that's why this will probably only apply to me. But I, I, I found this saying years ago that I like, that God doesn't often eliminate our problems, but he enables our perseverance. And that's one of the things that we're going to be uh, talking about, and you know, we we have a whole set of current crises in the in the world, and you just have to listen to the news for five minutes to hear a ton of them. Of course, there's the ever present coronavirus pandemic, and where most of us are getting the stage where it has touched somebody uh, in our family. And of course, uh, we need to keep Leah's parents uh, in our in our prayers. I think you I heard you say your dad was 86. Is that right? And he has type 2 diabetes, and he's had congestive heart failure, so he's got a lot of those what they call comorbidity factors, so we need to, to remember him much in our prayers. And if you would, text me their names so I can know the actual names I'm praying for. But uh, my sister-in-law is uh, going through it right now, and uh, she's doing well. Uh, we've had um, my nephews had it, and uh, two of my nephews actually have had it, I think, and my, my brother-in-law has had it, and so we've got a whole host of people who have had it, um, and most of them have come through it just fine. But you, you kind of wonder, since this is a fast-mutating virus, is this ever going to go away? And there's already vaccines available, and they're going to start uh, coming out next month, and I guess being given to high-risk people, and you can thank President Trump that there's any kind of vaccine out at, in this speedy time because most of the time it requires a lengthy approval process and usually 
the vaccines that come out are you know a year and a half, two years after the after the problem is out. Uh, but you, you wonder, is that even going to do any good if something that mutates constantly? And even if you get the coronavirus, they wonder how long your immunity to it will last. So you know it, that's certainly a crisis. And then there's armed conflict in Ethiopia right now, and there's armed conflict in Syria right now, and there's instability in the uh, Central African Republic, and in, in Somalia, there's 40% of people who need humanitarian aid and assistance. Venezuela, uh, boy, you talk about a government gone wrong. Uh, 94% of the people live below the poverty line. 94%, isn't that amazing? Uh, Republican Congo is now having the second largest Ebola outbreak in history. And Ebola, obviously, is even far more deadly than the coronavirus is. And then, of course, right here at home is our election debacle. And uh, it's, it's a sad thing, and it seems very obvious to me that anybody with common sense can see that uh, the election has, uh, that there have been attempts to, to steal the election. Uh, when Trump got 10 million more votes than he got last time, and the Republicans picked up 10 seats in the House of Representatives, and they maintained a uh, hold over the Senate, and yet somehow or other uh, in only four key cities uh, outside the traditional Democrat strongholds of the West Coast and New York and places like that, uh, but in four key cities that he needed to win the election. Uh, in Georgia, they had a toilet overflow, and when they came back from dealing with that plumbing problem, there were more than 100,000 new votes, all for Biden in Michigan at 4 a.m. in the morning. They found 138,000 votes, 100% of which for, for, were for Biden. Uh, and uh, statistically, those numbers just don't work. Uh, math doesn't work like that. Um, and now there's more and more proof. And, I, you know, it was interesting this morning I saw that uh, Biden has named Janet Yellen as his new uh, uh, Treasury Secretary and, uh, or, or Federal Reserve Secretary. She's been that before, and uh, she'll be the first person to hold that office, I think, a second time. Uh, certainly the first woman to ever do that. Um, and I, I'm thinking maybe it's a little presumptive to start announcing your cabinet yet because until all the legal challenges are resolved and the constitutionality of the Philadelphia or Pennsylvania vote is over, might be premature. In fact, is the legislature in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, tomorrow's their last day. Uh, in this session, and it looks like they're going to probably pass a bill to call a special election, so we have another election in Pennsylvania. I don't know how they can do that with the logistics that are involved, uh, but certainly the process was more than enough corrupt there that you kind of wonder what's going on. So, you know, anywhere you look in the world, there's some kind of crisis, whether it's a political crisis like the one we face here or other crises, and then we all have our, our personal crises. Uh, very often people are, you know, have family that are being touched by the pandemic or there's a job market instability. And uh, somebody was, uh, I was texting with last week, thought, well, there must not be a lot of jobs right now uh, in Texas in the IT world. And I said, well, there's 80,000 jobs in, in the DFW area and surely there's one that's open that your skills would fit and would apply to. But, you know, it is kind of questionable. You know, a lot of companies, they can't go out and make sales in person anymore because of the coronavirus. So they're having to market online and have meetings online, and it's kind of changing the face of, of marketing forever. And so as companies adjust, uh, they, oh, some people find themselves losing their job because either their companies aren't profitable enough or, or because uh, they have to hire new people to 
do their business in a new way. And these are the challenges of parenting. It's hard just to keep your own kids' hearts. Uh, and when, it, when they're little, it's easy to keep their hearts, but you have challenges. Uh, I know Chris and Desiree have the challenges of a child with autism, and, and uh, I was thinking about Jubilee this morning, just the meaning of her name and how precious that was. And um, what, you know, it really means a celebration, and it's a, a freedom. And yet there's special challenges with, with raising a baby. I like that. And then as kids get older, the challenges get different because then it's a matter of keeping their hearts when they're, they're forming themselves into adults and they develop uh, adult alliances and they want to go have their own social life and they forget for a while that family even exists. And uh, uh, it's like mom and dad maybe uh, don't have as big an influence in their life as, as they would like to. And then there's just the changing seasons of life. Uh, I have decided that aging is for the birds. I'm, I'm not really happy with the whole process of aging. And, uh, you know, I remember when I hit about 31, I, I came down with um, fibromyalgia for eight years of my life, and I walked on a cane, and, and uh, I don't know, I would almost trade where I am now for back then uh, because I think that pain was significantly less, but it was challenging nonetheless. Uh, and got past that season of life and had a lot of good years. And then uh, it, since I've had two accidents that both have resulted in spinal surgery and I've never really recovered from the last one, uh, those are challenges. And, and uh, I, I want you to know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be a downer right after Thanksgiving, but sometimes it's hard to feel thankful when you hurt all the time. Or it's hard to feel thankful when you're constantly challenged by the same thing. And I know uh, we've got some, some folks in our Indian congregation that are constantly being challenged with dealing with visa issues or green card issues or, or job issues, trying to get that job that lets them keep their, their status here so they can stay in this country. And it, you know, it gets discouraging when you have those challenges all the time. And then there's financial problems, and a lot of times those are of our own making. You know, sometimes we, we think we have to have a new car, we have to have a new house, and the minute we get it, uh, we can no longer, we no longer have breathing room in our budget. And, you know, usually tithe is the first thing that goes in people's life, and then it's savings. They don't save for the future anymore. And so we make a lot of our own mess, but there's also the truth that our, our currency is being devalued. So, for example, when every time we print new money, and so when we had the last uh, stimulus check from the government that most of you got and, and benefited from, and that was a great thing in terms of the fact that it, it stirred up the economy and it put more people back to work and got businesses back to work, uh, but when you print $2 trillion, it means that all the dollars that are out there in circulation are worth less, uh, worth less, and you do that enough times and then they're worthless. Uh, and so there are currency uh, problems. Of course, in, in the uh, 1920s in, in Germany, uh, uh, money became essentially worthless, and you would have to carry a wheelbarrow full of German marks uh, to the store just to buy a loaf of bread uh, because that's how worthless the, the money became. And then, you know, there's always the idea that there's going to be hyperinflation. And whenever this election is resolved, it doesn't matter who wins, whether it's Trump or Biden. And again, I, I believe that decision is still very much in doubt at the moment, in spite of the fact that the mainstream media would lead you to believe it's already uh, been concluded. 
But whichever side wins, sooner or later there's going to be another round of stimulus to help us get past this coronavirus insanity and stimulate the economy in some way. And uh, there you see this, this money so worthless, a lot of people have just thrown it in the street and they're sweeping it up uh, like trash. And this was uh, true uh, in Germany. And here's a, a loaf of bread, picture of a loaf of bread uh, for 4.6 million marks. Can you imagine going to, to Kroger's and the loaf of bread costs $4.6 million? Uh, that's essentially how uh, it was uh, for Germany. Here's 10 million marks. This was a sale, I guess. 10 million marks could buy two loaves of bread. And, of course, uh, I actually have a uh, $1 million Zimbabwe bill uh, in my safe at home. I actually have a number of them. You can buy, you can buy about uh, 10 or 20 a million in Zimbabwe dollars for, I don't know, 20 bucks on on, uh, Amazon and have them shipped to you. So I have some in my safe. And uh, again, they would have to carry whole armfuls or or wheelbarrows to the market just to get a small amount of food. Well, in 2 Chronicles 20, we have a crisis. And King Jehoshaphat is the king. He became king when he was about 20 years of age. And uh, Jehoshaphat was... uh, (laughs) He's, he's my kind of guy. He was a man of good intentions, but he didn't always carry them out. You know, does that describe any of us? That we have good intentions, but we don't, don't always put things into practice. Now, uh, when Jehoshaphat started out, he did some good things. He, burned, he took down idols. Uh, he uh, decided to you know, try to cleanse the, the places of worship. And, uh, but he didn't take care of the idols up in the, up in the mountains and in the hills, and that's uh, what he left undone. And then later on in life, he, for some reason, decided to make political alliances rather than trusting in God. So he formed an alliance with the wicked king Ahab of Israel, and they went into battle together against the advice of a prophet of God, and Ahab lost his life, and Jehoshaphat was sternly rebuked. He then later formed another partnership with another wicked king to build a fleet of merchant ships, and God destroyed all the ships before they'd even made their maiden voyage. And so Jehoshaphat, uh, he started out well. He didn't always finish well. Um, so I can kind of identify with him. I don't always follow through on doing what I know I should do, and I'm not always consistent, and certainly that was true of Jehoshaphat. Uh, during his early reign, though, he did express a great zeal for the Lord, and he tore down those high places. Uh, it's in the last part of his reign where he didn't finish well. And I, I, pray, uh, I pray that I finish well. Uh, I, I'm further away from the finish line than our pastor is, but I'm closer to it than some of you are. And my prayer is that I finish well, and sometimes I'm beginning to realize how challenging that is in this season of life. In 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat finds himself in a mess that he could not overcome by his own steam or his own ingenuity. By the way, I, I want to tell you something, and this is something I, I have told some of my children in the past, and I really should tell all of them. Uh, but I think one of the greatest challenges to being an effective Christian that stays on the path is your own intellect. 
Uh, now, I'm not saying that you need to cast aside your intellect if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian. No, I think that the, the Bible will stand up to any intellectual scrutiny we, we want to give to it. Uh, but the, the thing is, is that when we have a natural high intellect, we tend to trust in ourselves and our own ingenuity and our own solutions and our own thoughts rather than relying strictly on the Word of God and on the power of God and the power of prayer uh, to accomplish things. And so uh, this Jehoshaphat is in a situation where he really needs a miracle. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation where you know you just need a miracle because there's nothing else that will work, but I have certainly been there and kind of feel like I'm there now. So let's take a little time out from our, our history lesson and from all the stresses and cares of our life to look at Second Chronicles chapter 20. And I'm going to almost read the entire chapter. So I'm not going to ask you to stand because it's a lengthy reading. But I do think that uh, the most important thing you'll hear today will be the Word of God being read rather than what I have to say about it. So let's listen up. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against you from beyond the sea, this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to Seek to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And here comes one of the most beautiful prayers you'll ever read in Scripture. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein and they built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence for thy name is in this house. And cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold how I say, uh, how I say they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt not thou judge them? For we have no might against this great company, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken you, all Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. 
tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they arose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat said, Hear me, O Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army to say, Praise ye the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they'd made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness... They looked unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen on the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in the gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Baraka. Uh, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the Valley of Baraka until this day. Then they returned to every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord and the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now uh, put aside our trust in our own intellect and simply listen to the guidance you give for how to step through the messes of life successfully. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. And by the way, there's uh, the big points I'm going to get to are on the back of the bulletin. So if you don't have a bulletin, uh, you might want to grab one and you can take notes to add to that. Uh, but let's, uh, you know, first of all, do we ever have real problems? Now, Joe fat as a leader of a nation that's being attacked by three enemies. And by the way, the, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, y'all remember where they come from, right? Uh, Lot. Uh, fled with his two daughters up into the mountains. Uh, first, they were, they, they were supposed to go to the mountains, what the angels told them to do uh, when Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities of the plains were being destroyed. And uh, they, didn't wanna, they didn't think God could take care of them in the mountains. So they said, well, let's go to this little city called Zoar, which was the, five, one of, it was the smallest of the five cities of the plains. And they said, we'll, we'll dwell in Zoar because after all, they wanted to be near, you know, the the uh, Kroger's and the Safeway and whatever else was there. Life was more convenient in the city. So God uh, said, okay, you can go there. And so the destruction begins on the other four cities of the plains. We know that the ground was broken up. There was fire and brimstone. There was probably volcanic eruptions. There was all manner of catastrophe. There were earthquakes. And uh, the, the people in the city of Zoar were watching this phenomenon. And by the way, you remember uh, Lot's wife is already 
turned around and looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. So uh, now it's just him and his, his daughters and people in town begin to look at him funny because just at the time that there's catastrophes all around them, this strange family shows up. And, and people were naturally superstitious after all they believed and, and different uh, whole pantheon of gods and new family shows up just at the moment that all this is happening. And they start looking at him funny. And then Lot and his daughters begin to think, oh dear, what are the people of Zoar going to do to us? They're looking at us funny. And so they decide, maybe we should go to the mountains, which is exactly where God tried to send them to begin with. Then they get up in the mountains, and Lot's children have never been out of the big city. They have never been anywhere else. In fact, is they think the whole world consists of those five cities of the plains that are being destroyed. And so his daughters get up there, and they're worried that when their dad dies, who's going to take care of them? Because women didn't really have a way to make a living, didn't really have a way to take care of themselves. And they needed a, a man in that society. And they're thinking, who are going to do that? And they said, we, we, need, we need sons. We need children who will take care of us in our, in our old age. And so, um, you know, and I try to tell my children that, that their job in life is to one day take care of me in the manner to which I've not yet become accustomed. Uh, but uh, at any rate, they get really worried about that. And they decide to trick their father into fathering their children so that they will have someone to come. And one of those sons was named Ammon, or Ammon, so Ammon, for which the city of Ammon, Jordan is named. And the other was Moab. And really, these children represent what happens when we get in such doubt of God and in such despair of God that we do stupid. We do stupid when we fail to trust God, and this is what happens. So they represent the doubt and despair that comes in our life. And, of course, Mount Seir, those are the descendants of Esau. You remember how Esau was so desirous to fulfill the desires of his flesh just to have a bowl of stew uh, that his mother and brother had cooked up that he was willing to sell his birthright just to fulfill the desires of his flesh. And so the, the Edomites or the descendants of Mount Seir have always represented uh, the fleshly desires and how they tend to dominate uh, any spiritual intent unless we have Jesus Christ in our lives. And so here we have uh, three enemies that come against them. And the first thing you should notice about this problem is it's a sudden problem. Uh, how many of you have ever noticed that some problems come on you suddenly without warning? And, uh, it's, you know, so, yeah, there are gradual problems that creep on us, like health problems start. And as we get older, they maybe intensify or get worse. But this was a sudden problem. It came up with insufficient advance warning. It left him in shock. Now, Jehoshaphat believed in having a strong defense. His motto was, in time of peace, prepare for war. Uh, that was probably a pretty good motto. And when his father had 300,000 men from Judah and 280,000 men from Benjamin ready for battle, Jehoshaphat bumped the numbers up significantly. He had 780,000 men from Judah and 380,000 from Benjamin in his army. So he had almost 1.2 million armed men ready to go to battle. So even with this over a million man army, this attack comes so swiftly there was no time 
to mount an adequate defense. In other words, the, the, arm, the, the 1.6 million or 1.2 million men didn't live uh, in tents and barracks just outside the city. They were scattered all over and they were to be called up to duty at any time when couriers arrived with a message from the king that says it's time to go to battle. They were supposed to grab their shields and their spears and whatever else they had and get ready to come to battle. But that took a while to bring those people in uh, from everywhere. So it was a sudden problem. It came so quickly that he couldn't get that 1.2 million man army together. It was also unexpected. It came from kind of unexpected quarters. Now, Jehoshaphat had stationed most of his fighting men uh, in the fortified cities in the northern part of Judah, and that was to fend off attacks from Israel, the the Omri dynasty. Uh, Because remember, this is part of the divided kingdom. So Israel and Judah are two different countries. Israel is often attacking Judah. And so he put most of his men in the north to protect from attacks uh, uh, from Israel. But the, and the Ammonites were a major threat to Jerusalem. They were to the northeast. So if you kept most of your, your fighting men in the north and the northeast, you were easily protected. But we know that the Bible says this attack came from Hazazon Tamar, which is Engadi. This is on the west coast of the Dead Sea. So this attack comes from the southeast. They didn't have their men in the southeast. Nobody expected attack from the southeast. This attack comes from basically out of nowhere. So it was kind of like life had dealt them a sucker punch. Uh, It was something you didn't expect. It came from an unexpected direction. And then it was overwhelming. It isn't just one enemy to deal with, but it's the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. It's all three of them. And uh, they were vicious. And also uh, the Edomites in Mount Seir were specifically called the Munites, but they're all descendants of Esau. It was an overwhelming force. So it was a sudden problem. It was an unexpected problem. And it was an overwhelming problem. And all those things happened at one time. That's pretty, uh, pretty bad. So what do you do when life presents you with a problem that's bigger than you are? What do you do when life presents you with a problem that's just too uh, much to handle in your own strength? Well, these steps are on the back of your bullet, and hopefully you'll add your own notes to what I've put there. But the first step is you need to confront the problem. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes you just want to run away from the problem. You want to hide from the problem. You don't want to admit the problem. But uh, it says Jehoshaphat in verse 3, Jehoshaphat feared. In other words, he, it, the Bible admits he was scared. He must have told somebody because the historian wrote it down that this was a, this was a bad problem. And, and, and you notice that twice in this chapter, God has to tell people not to be afraid nor dismayed. Now, fear not nor be dismayed. And to, to be dismayed means that you, you allow yourself to be confused and overwhelmed because you don't know what to do. And, and you're, you're just so, you're, you're basically paralyzed by the fear that you have. And, and God doesn't try to downplay the situation. He says, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of what? This great multitude. So God says, yeah, you do really have a big problem here. It's a whopper, but don't be afraid nor dismayed. You know, you would love for God to just tell you, hey, don't worry about this. This is just chump change. It's no big deal. But God says, yeah, this is a great multitude. You really, uh, you, you're done for here unless I help you. You see, when God calls something a great multitude, it really is a big problem. It really is a whopper. And then God gives them instructions to march toward the problem. 
that seems contradictory to me. You know, if I've got, uh, if, if I don't have enough fighting men where I need to be, the last thing I'm going to do is march toward the enemy when I am overwhelmed completely. And then you might be tempted to run. Uh, that makes sense to me. In fact, as I teach self-defense classes, and uh, one of the th- principles that I teach in self-defense classes is that, uh, well, Wyatt Earp, the, the famous <laughs> American marshal, uh, once said that the best way to get, win a gunfight is to not show up for it. That, that is, by the way, the only sure way to, to win a gunfight is don't be there. Run, you know, if, if it's better to get out of Dodge than have to stay there for a gunfight because then you get the risk of being shot. So, you know, and, and uh, if you can avoid a conflict, and so I spend a lot of my time when I teach uh, licensed to carry classes, teaching people how to recognize conflict before it becomes a problem, how to avoid it sooner, be alert to what's going on one or two blocks in front of you instead of the three feet in front of you. A lot of people have their whole attention when they walk down the street focused on the, the nine inches in front of them that's occupied by their cell phone. Even without a cell phone, most people only focus at about three feet in front of them, but you can't see trouble if you're not looking a block or two away. A number of years ago, Judy and I were going to a marriage conference in downtown Dallas, and we were staying uh, in what has now been burned down. It's not there anymore, but the Ambassador Hotel, which was uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt had a uh, room in that hotel that he stayed in when he came to Dallas. And and, uh, we were going to a marriage conference there, and it was Christmas time. And so uh, my wife, uh, because we'd never been in that part of Dallas at that time of year, wanted to stroll down to a little store called Neiman Markup, and, uh, and see the Christmas displays, which are really spectacular. I now know why they nicknamed that store Neiman Markup, because we walked in in the women's clothing section. I, I found a dress for $8,000. Well, I can buy two decent cars for what that dress costs. And uh, so I, I thought, man, this is not a place for me. Uh, but as we were walking back to the hotel, which was probably half a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile, uh, I, I happened to notice about uh, two and a half, three blocks down on the right-hand side, there was a group of uh, uh, young men who, let's just say they looked shady. Uh, they were the kind of guys that uh, wore their waist, uh, waist too low and they wore big baggy clothing. It was easy to conceal weapons in. And uh, they were all standing around really kind of being shiftless. And, and I, I did have a firearm on me that day, so I was prepared for conflict, but I didn't want to use it, don't ever want to use it. Uh, but uh, Judy and I crossed the street to get on the other side of the street about two blocks before we ever got to these people. And then when we got even with them, they did start taunting us and saying things, inviting us to come over there where they were. And uh, we just kind of didn't make eye contact and we kept moving. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we avoided a conflict. But if we hadn't been aware and we just kept walking straight, we might have run into a real situation. So a lot of times awareness will get you out of that. But when problems come and you're tempted to run, sometimes I think we short-circuit getting to see God do something for us. Getting to short-circuit the power of God on display in our lives and we miss the valley of blessing, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, that comes later. And it's interesting in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And so I think that's a a significant thing. And over and over again, Paul and others tell us to stand fast. Watch you. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. 
Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord, and this is just a fraction of the quotes in Scripture, uh, with the injunction for us to stand fast. Excuse me. This this injunction to stand fast, and that's that's so very important. So now we're told to stand fast rather than run from our problems. And number two, we should cease trusting in the flesh. Uh, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, look what, look what he says in our prayer. O our God, wilt not thou judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. I think we need to admit to God that we don't have the power to solve our, our problems that come to us. We don't have a, a, an ingenious plan. We don't have the strength. We don't have the intestinal fortitude to deal with these big problems that come at us in life. And we need to quit trusting our own intellect. We need to quit trusting our own physical strength. We need to quit trusting our ability to rob Peter, to pay Paul, and hopefully it'll, the financial problems will go away at some point in the future. Uh, you know, if a child never admitted their needs to mom and dad, uh, they would never be very close to mom and dad. Uh, little kids come to mom and dad because they need stuff. And sometimes it's stuff you can't even deliver. I remember Melody came in one time almost with tears in her eyes. She had a little rubber band powered toy. It was probably one of those planes that you wind up the propeller on. And her rubber band had broken. And she came and handed me the broken rubber band and said, Daddy, fix this. And, uh, and I happened to have a rubber band nearby. I said, honey, look at that. And she turned her head, and I got the new rubber band. I said, here, honey, it's fixed. Now, I probably should have just admitted the fact that I couldn't fix the rubber band, but I, I did want her to know that she could always come back to me with her problems in the future. Uh, but part of a growing relationship with the Heavenly Father is us admitting that we need Him. It's, it's not like we get through six days on our own and on Sunday we come here and we sing I need thee every hour or we come, uh, we come here and just sing about them and then the rest of the week we're kind of oblivious to them. No, every day you ought to spend some time telling God, God, I don't know what this day holds and I don't know how to handle the challenges that are going to come up. But Lord, I, I, I have no might against what's going to happen Neither do I know what to do, but my eyes are upon thee. So we need to cease trusting in the flesh. And then that, that last part, we need to completely concentrate on God. We need to focus on God, but our eyes are upon thee. Now, now I, I think it's inst- interesting that one of the things that keeps us focused on God is just developing a habit of prayer. And when I say a habit of prayer, I'm not saying you pray at the same time every day uh, and, and say the same words every day or learn the same ritualistic uh, prayer every day. I've, I've known uh, people that prayed and they, they, would, they would use the name of God about every fourth word somewhere in their prayer because somehow or other they, they had heard that from somewhere else. And it almost becomes a rote prayer the other, other than a real conversation with a real God. If you were talking to me, I wouldn't expect the third word of every sentence to be Robert or Brother Robert. I, mean, I wouldn't want to hear that over and over again. Um, just, I just want to hear what you have to say from your heart. And that's what God wants us to say. But I want you to notice, they prayed with commitment. They not only prayed, but they fasted. That's a, a Baptist, uh, generally speaking, we cannot spell the word fasted because we think it has an E between the F and the A. Uh, and so we, we believe in feasting rather than fasting. Uh, but... You know, they prayed and they fasted. That shows how committed they were to prayer. And then they, they prayed with communion. You notice they prayed together. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, uh, Peter is told, tells us that, um, that 
not only should we have our prayers, but he says, husbands, you should treat your wives with honor as the weaker vessel so that your prayers be not hindered. And in Greek, when you say your prayers, there's a way to say your prayers meaning you singular and prayers, your prayers meaning you plural. See, English we have a problem because you could mean I could point at Steve and say you and just mean that, or I could do this and motion to all of you and say you. I'm using the same word but mean two entirely different things. It's very clear in 1 Peter when he says, Husbands, treat your wives with honor as the weaker vessel so that your prayers together as husband and wife be not hindered. There's a power that comes in praying with others. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And if, if two or three of you shall pray, uh, agreeing on anything that you shall ask, it shall be done for you by my Father which is in heaven. So there's a, there's a power of praying with communion. And they certainly prayed correctly. They prayed with the right attitude. They put their trust in the right place. Um, here's three qualities, and you might want to jot this down because this is not on your bulletin. Uh, I want you to look at three qualities of effective prayer. Look at verse Verse 4 here, they, they remember God's efficient performance. And it says, Judah gathered themselves together, ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then in verse 6 he says, and here's the prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Rulest not thou over all the kingdoms and the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? He says, God... Look at, look at what you've done uh, in the past. You've, you've exercised power over the heathen. You've judged other nations. and You've benefited Israel. And you keep on reading this prayer. And, and in, in verse 7 he talks about God's efficient performance. He says, Didn't you drive out the inhabitants of the land before thy people Israel? And you gave us the seed of Abraham thy friend forever. And then in verse 9 they, they're relying on God's enabling power. He says, Listen, we built the sanctuary in thy name so that we said... If when evil cometh upon us as a sword or pestilence or judgment or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence for thy name is in this house and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. He says, we're relying on you uh, to help. I love Isaiah 43 too when it says, When thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. I love that verse, just to, to rely on the fact that God can perform. And then the fourth thing we should need to do is learn how to continue before God or learn how to wait. Now, I'm not a good uh, wait person. Uh, one, of the, one of the side effects of working in information technology for the last 20 years is that I expect uh, uh, something to happen when I press a button. Uh, when I press a button, I'm supposed to get a response. And if I have to wait very long, I get a response. So some of you know we have Alexa devices in our house. And I'll say Alexa, and, and she'll uh, start glowing blue on the top. And then I'll, I'll ask her something maybe that I'm curious about or ask her what the weather is today. Usually if I'm hurting, I'll ask her what the weather is. And I'll ask her, what's the weather two days from now? And invariably, there'll be a rainstorm two days from, from that time. And I, I say, okay, now I know why I'm hurting. It doesn't make me hurting less, but it's not to know why I hurt, you know, that there's a storm on the way. Uh, but uh, I, I noticed just this last week, I would say Alexa, and she wouldn't glow blue on top. And I would usually go ahead and say what it was that I wanted. And about the time I finished my question, then the little light comes on uh, that she's acknowledged the fact that I've spoken to her. And now uh, she usually answered the question. But sometimes I'd wait and I'd say, Alexa, turn on the master bedroom lights and, and 
And, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm just about to say it again when finally the lights click. I, I hate slow responses. I don't want to wait. I finally did the, uh, the thing you would do with a Microsoft computer that was slow. I unplugged it and plugged it back in and did a reboot. And then things worked much better. Uh, but waiting is essential in our spiritual lives. And notice what it says about Judah. It says, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So it wasn't just one person in the family. Basically, the entire family waited for the Lord. They, they prayed, they fasted, and then they're waiting on God to, to do something. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I pray and I wait on God to do something, while I'm waiting on Him, I'm trying to solve the problem on my own. I'm doing research, I'm looking up things, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to get out of the dilemma that I'm in. Because our focus is on how do I get out of the problem, God's focus is how can he change us to be more like Christ. There's a different focus in our problems. But waiting is essential to praise and worship and you will never waste time praising God. You'll never waste time talking to God, you'll never waste time waiting on God. And uh, I wish you had heard Brother Steve's quote while he was discussing uh, the difference between compel and constrain, and constrain is the better translation uh, there, uh, but uh, he, he made a little quote about praise, and I'm hoping he remembers what it is and sends to me. It was poetic and very beautiful. In April 3rd, 1977, was the worst airline crash in history. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, it killed 570 people. Uh, it was in a place to, called Los Rodeos, uh, on Santa Cruz de Tenerife, Tenerife. Um, and there were a lot of planes that had been diverted there. And the reason they'd been diverted there is that there was a bomb at another airport in the area, uh, and, and the bomb exploded, and so all the flights that were headed for that airport were diverted to this airport. Uh, and this is, uh, I think this, if I remember right, it's in the Canary Islands, uh, but uh, there, there were two airlines. There was an American Pan Am plane and then a Dutch Airlines plane, and it was foggy. And uh, what happened is that the Pan Am World Airways jet had 364 passengers. The KLM Royal Dutch Airlines plane had 225 passengers. And uh, the pilot of the Dutch plane... Uh, said on the radio, he says, we're, we're, we're on takeoff. Now, normally what pilots would say is we're on roll, meaning they're rolling up to the end of the runway, and then they're waiting for the tower to say, you are clear to take off. But uh, he didn't say that. He used different words. And then he revved up his engines and sped down the runway without ever getting clearance from the tower. At the other end of the runway was the Pan Am's plane, and uh, because it was foggy, they didn't realize that another plane was barreling down onto them, so they began to see the lights. And the pilot of the Pan Am plane tried to veer off, and he veers off to one side, as you can kind of see in that bottom picture, and yet he still struck the wing, and of course the, the wing was full of aviation fuel, and both planes exploded and burst into fire and left nothing but the wreckage that you see in that picture on the right. Uh, basically... It was pilot error. It wasn't the weather conditions. They could have handled fog. It was because one pilot took off without clearance from the tower. Uh, pilot error in the worst possible sense of the word. But, you know, there's a lot of days that we really need to focus on God, concentrate on God, wait on God, rather than start our day and immediately plunge down the runway uh, not knowing what's ahead. 
You know, no Air Force pilot would ever fly a flight without a flight briefing where he's told where the enemy flight's going to be and what the objectives are and what the weather is and how that's going to influence his flight. They go to a flight briefing to prepare for the day. And yet we often fly into the day without any kind of warning. But what we need to do is first wait on God. And we don't like waiting, but I'll tell you what. In the morning, get up, spend some time with your Bible, spend some time in prayer, And then just ask God, God, is there anything I need to know for today? And while you're reading your Bible, maybe a verse will jump up and slap you in the face. Maybe a verse will stand out and says, you need this, Robert. And you pull that verse out and you know that I need to pay attention to this. The fifth principle of what to do in the mess is to confess the truth of God. That is basically to quote the truth of God, to, to look at the promises of Scripture or the observations in Scripture and see how they apply to our lives. And, and notice in verse 15, he says, Hearken ye all Judah, ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Now this is a prophet that rises up. This is the only time we hear this particular prophet. His name is Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, and he's a Levite, and he gets up to speak. only time we hear about this guy in Scripture. But he, he says, Hearken ye, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, now King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. And that was, that basically he's, what is he doing? He's confessing the truth of God. He's confessing that God says, hey, the battle's not yours, it's mine. And that's what he's quoting. And look how they responded in verses 19 and 20. And it says, And the Levites, the children of the Kohathites, and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning, went forth in the wilderness to Koa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe as prophets, so shall you prosper. They responded by doing what God had told them. But somebody, first of all, had to confess the truth of God. I don't know, uh, uh, I, I guess, if you ever want a, a, a very simple, inexpensive purchase that'll help your spiritual life or it'll help for those brief uh, two, three minute intervals where you have time to read something but you don't have time to read much or you just need something to carry around in your car or in your purse or in your pocket uh, that'll encourage you, go to any Christian bookstore and just find a book of God's promises. And usually they're just quotes of scripture. And if you, don't, if, if you didn't have your whole Bible with you, read that until you find a promise that, that helps you and then confess that promise, hold on to that promise, claim that promise for yourself. We need to confess the truth of God. And then the next step is we need to commit to obey the will of God, to actually do what He asks us to do. Look at verse 17. You shall not need to fight in this battle. This is the second time they are told this, by the way. Set yourselves, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. So they're told this multiple times. And they commit, and it tells us the next morning what they do. They left and headed toward the desert. They left and headed toward the enemy. Why? Because that's what God told them to do. And they begin to sing as they were commanded. Um, and we find out in a few more verses that when they got there, all the enemies were defeated. Why? Because God had defeated them. Uh, they ended up getting riches from the crisis. So we, God begins to work, I think, when we begin to obey. In fact, if you look very closely at what Scripture says, um, 
in verse 19, it says they stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And then it says they rose up early in the morning, went forth in the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and tells them what, it, what we just read. And uh, then he appoints singers in verse 21 who are supposed to praise the Lord and the beauty of His holiness. And look at verse 22. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord sent ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. In other words, the very minute they start out on the trip, God goes and defeats the enemy. It turns out the Ammonites and the Moabites decide to destroy the Munites or the Edomites that were out there. And then when the Edomites are destroyed, the Ammonites and Moabites turn on each other until every one of them was destroyed unto the very last man. They all died. They got out there, there's nothing but dead bodies. But it all started when they committed to obey the will of the Lord and took that first step toward the wilderness. That's fascinating to me. I'm sure you remember, I've told you the story of a uh, Wycliffe translator that was in a, a uh, place translating the scriptures uh, in Asia where there was no uh, word for obedience. And he was trying to figure out how do I translate the word obey or obedience. And then one day he, he noticed a, a native step outside of his hut and he whistled and the dog, his dog came running from a long distance away, running at, at a breakneck speed. And he heard one of the other natives says, that dog is all ear. And, and all ear simply means that, uh, that we have this ability to uh, respond to God. We hear God's word and we instantly respond. Uh, obedience is being all ear. And then finally, celebrate the greatness of God. Uh, they uh, rehearsed the Lord's holiness. They praised his name and his mercy. In fact, look, look at what it is that they sing. He says, when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers of the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Now, by the way, um, I, I appreciate so much Brother Dennis and Brother Steve and leading us in beautiful songs and hymns that have rich theology to them. Uh, when we picked this hymnal uh, probably 18 years ago, I think it was 17, 18 years ago. I looked for maybe not that long, but anyway, it's a long time ago. Uh, we looked for a, a hymnal that had uh, some songs with deep theology, and we looked for a hymnal that had uh, good words of praise. And, and interestingly enough, when you know this this hymnal has stood up to to that challenge. Um, and one of the things I, I kind of get miffed at sometimes when I visit other churches is what I call the Seven Eleven songs, the same seven words sung eleven times. Uh, and in fact, is at the last church I was at on our last Sunday there, uh, the music director got up and he led a chorus that I happen to love very much. But I think I counted, uh, and we sung that chorus nineteen times, over and over again. And and even though it was great words, our God is an awesome God. That was the chorus. I like that song, and I like the chorus. But after about the sixth or seventh time, anything will annoy you if it's constantly repeated. And that shouldn't happen. A, a spiritual song shouldn't annoy people. It should encourage people and bless them. And, and I, I just remember what a problem that was. But, but apparently, there's at least one song that you can sing over and over again, and that is, 
praise the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. And that's what they sang. They sang, praise the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. And then as they walked along, they sang verse 2, praise the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. And then verse 3, praise the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. Now I have to imagine in my mindset that maybe they added some other things in there. But what we have recorded that they sang was praise the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. And that certainly is the most biblical of concepts that you could sing about. And it says, when they began to sing in praise, that's when God began to act. By the way, I really, I really love what it says. It says that they, they praised the Lord in the beauty of holiness, verse 21, that should praise the beauty of holiness. I, you know, I'm not quite sure what that means. But, you know, I, I do know that one of my favorite hymns, two of my favorite hymns, well, of course, one is How Great Thou Art. That's probably at the top of my list. And, of course, I love others like Great is Thy Faithfulness. And, and I, I love that... Um, Come thou fount of every blessing. Uh, but I certainly love the words holy, holy, holy. That's a song that's actually sung in, in the book of Isaiah. We hear that song being sung. And, and they praised the Lord's holiness and they praised His name and His mercy. Um, I'm not as good at quoting from memory uh, poems as Brother Steve is. Uh, but listen to this. It says, Beyond all the smiling or back of the frown, are you in weariness often cast down? Does your heart long for a true victor's crown put on the garment of praise? Give to your soul a real covering from sin. Add the rich warmth of God's presence within. Fill up with love a lost brother to win. Put on the garment of praise. Joy without measure will brighten the day. Peace like a river will flow all the way. Power abundant is yours come what may. Put on the garment of praise. What if there's sadness all strewn down the road? What if life's troubles invade your abode? What if earth's treasures begin to corrode? Put on the garment of praise. Praise is the power that breaks every hold. Praise is the method of making one bold. This is the pathway of glory untold. Put on the garment of praise. Uh, I, I especially love, and of course you, you've noticed, and, and I've mentioned this before, that when I put the songs in the, in the bulletin, I, I either refer to them as songs or hymns. Hymns are songs sung to the Lord. Song, regular gospel songs are sung about the Lord or about our Christian experience, and certainly both are valid. But I always love it when there's at least one hymn that we sing in every service that we sing uh, to the Lord, and I, I appreciate that. And then the next step and the final step is collect riches from the crisis. Um, did you notice it took them three days to carry away the spoils of that battle? They went out and it says they, it says they came to take away the spoil of them. They found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in the gathering of spoil. It was so much. They had to make retreat, repeated trips out to strip off the wealth that these other armies had on display and strip off the jewels and strip off the gold. It took them three days, and every day it was more than they could carry away, and it took them three days to, to get it all. Uh, but, you know, a lot of life's problems, at, when we're going through it, we think, can anything good ever come out of this? Uh, I remember years ago, my fibromyalgia got so bad that Judy would have to literally... Uh, I'd have to grab onto her arms and she would have to pull me out of bed in the morning because uh, I couldn't, literally couldn't get out of the bed without her and then I had to grab a cane just to get anywhere and I was that way pretty much for about eight years of my life. Um, and I often asked myself, you know, is anything good coming out of this? Because 
I, I, I always remember those words from Romans uh, that that God works for good all things to you know for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And I kept thinking, surely this stuff will be good, you know, sooner or later. But I didn't feel it at the time. But later, I you know after God healed me of it, I realized that. I learned a lot as a pastor from going through that suffering. For one thing, I now know that the biggest challenge that people face with medical problems is the inevitable wait on lab results. It's, it's, it's waiting on someone to tell them what's wrong. And not knowing what's wrong is the most frustrating part of being sick. Not knowing how you fix it is the frustrating part. If somebody would just give you a diagnosis, you could begin working on, a, on how to improve your prognosis. But that waiting is horrific. And I became more sensitive to that as a pastor when I went to the hospital to visit people and went uh, through those things with them. And I'm, I'm more aware of it, certainly, than I was. And I also learned that uh, pain drives you to your knees. And maybe we just need to go to our knees more often so we don't have to be driven there. Uh, it was certainly a good lesson to learn. Now, by the way, it's interesting that you'll notice that when they, they went out toward the wilderness, it was called the the wilderness of Tekoa, but when they went out there and they got there, uh, they collected these riches from the, the uh, battle, they changed the name of the place to the Valley of Baraka. Uh, Baruch is the Hebrew word for blessing, so the Valley of Baraka basically meant the Valley of Blessing. Now, isn't it interesting that a place that was designed for their defeat and was determined for their destruction became the place of their blessing? And, and it says that, that it is Baraka because only God can turn a planned defeat into a blessing. And God told them that they would find their enemy before the wilderness of Jeruel. I love, love this. He, he says, uh, let's find the verse here uh, quickly. And, and then he, it says, uh, verse 16, Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz. You shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Jeruel means taught by God. So in other words, he says, okay, the enemy's coming against you. I want you to go out there because you're about to be taught by God. And when they get out there, all their enemies are destroyed. And they said, you know what? We're going to call this the Valley of Blessing because God has blessed us so uh, amazingly. God wants us to learn from our trials and our, uh, our defeats. And, and he wants to turn them into victories that we can benefit others. We need to collect riches from uh, the crisis. I like this sign I found. It says, if you saw the size of the blessing coming, you would understand the magnitude of the battle you were fighting. Uh, and sometimes I wonder <laughs> when I uh, literally scream in the middle of the night from pain and, and uh, hurt all night, you know, I think, what is the credit? Uh, what, what, where is this going? Well, I, I want you to notice this last step. I thought the last one was the last one, but this is definitely the last one. Carefully give credit to the Lord. So when this story ends... Uh, we, they didn't strut around in their blue leotards with the big S on, the, on their chest and talk about how great they were, how powerful they were, and how they, they whooped their enemies, but they gave credit to the Lord. Verse 27, Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go again with, to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord 
had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries. That's uh, basically a small, uh, well, they, they had both uh, little flutes that they played, and they also had little harps that they played, and the psaltery would tend to be a stringed instrument. He says, there was psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord, and the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So that tells you something. They went around talking about how God gave them the battle and what did the enemies get when they heard the news. Hey, their God fought their battle for them. And that put fear into the hearts of other potential enemies. But they didn't take credit for themselves. They said, God did this. Jehovah did this for us. And this passage ends, not the chapter, because there's some other historical detail at the end of the chapter. But this story ends with, so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for his God gave him rest round about. Uh, something I try to encourage my own heart with from time to time, uh, I try to encourage my own heart with the knowledge that the most, one of the most frequently used phrases, so there's, there's two phrases that occur repeatedly throughout Scripture, probably the two most common phrases in Scripture. One is, it says, uh, Thus saith the Lord. I've often thought about I'd like to do a sermon series on thus saith the Lord and find every time that occurred in scripture and it would be a very long series and I have enough trouble getting through one epistle. Uh, But the other phrase is and it came to pass. I'm so glad it doesn't say and it came to stay. My problems don't come to stay, they come to pass. Now sometimes in the midst of them I wonder and I've, I've been dealing with this pain since 2015 I wonder sometimes, will it ever pass? But the Bible says, and it came to pass. But whatever good comes of it, I need to be careful that I give the credit to the Lord. Maybe I found a nutritional article that helped, or maybe I found a doctor that had a treatment that really worked for me, but I need to be careful to remember there's only one great physician. There's a lot of doctors, but there's only one great physician, and he alone can heal. We need to carefully give our credit to the Lord. As Brother Dennis comes and and leads us in a song, I just want to encourage you that I don't know how big your problem is, how long your problem's been going on, if your problem's getting more challenging, but I can encourage you to know that it's coming to pass and not coming to stay. And I pray these little points on the back of your bulletin uh, and that you've heard today will be an encouragement to you. Would you all turn to number 323, Brother Dennis, going to lead us from coming sinners.